Hello, this is Richard Wilson with the Family Office Club. And if you want to learn about investing right before and through a recession so that you can do well and be in line with where your strengths are as a family or private investor, then listen to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast with my friend Sam Newell. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Hi, and welcome back to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the show. His name's Richard Wilson. He's hugely impressed me with the business that he's built, which is called the Family Office Club. Uh, You can find it at familyoffices.com. Pitchdex.com is another one of his businesses, and Centimillionaires.com. He has eight free giveaways for family offices who are uh, looking for performance-based family office solutions, really in the $100 million plus asset class. Now, Richard is the author of the number one best-selling book in the family office industry, The Single Family Office creating, operating, and managing the investment of a single-family office. He also earned a degree from Oregon State University, his MBA from University of Portland, and has studied master's-level psychology through Harvard's ALM program while previously residing in Boston. He's now in Miami. He has three kids and continues to run the Family Office Club. He has events all over the nation. I know I'm going to be going to an event soon. And uh, he's also an expert in marketing. And that's one of his businesses, Pitch Decks, learning how to work with investors, work with family offices. And uh, I'm really excited to have have, uh, Richard on the show. One of the really impressive things about Richard is that he grew his business during the 2007-2008 real estate crash. In fact, he grew it 100% in 2007, 100% again in 2008 and after that. So without further ado, Richard Wilson. I'm excited to have you on the show. You, Like I said, you, you were really impressive. Your branding's fantastic. The information's fantastic. And it just so happens I know a, a guy that's kind of getting his family office started I want to I want to introduce him to you because I think you'd add huge value. So he was a realtor with me. Yeah. Oh, geez, must have been eight years ago, and his family sold a business. Okay. He and his siblings each inherited. I think it was about fifteen million dollars each. Wow. They were smart. They started investing it, and but he he wasn't he he was still new, so he wasn't sophisticated. He wasn't experienced, okay. and you know. So I'm gonna his name's John. I'm gonna make sure I, I connect him with you because. I think you could add huge, add huge value, but is that your typical client? You know, you work with these family offices. Tell, tell my listeners a little bit about what you do, because I think it's, you filled a a niche that really needed what you provide. Yeah. You know, essentially it's usually someone who took a company public, sold a company or their company's cash flowing at, at much more than a million dollars a year, usually one, two, three, five million a year cash flow. Mm -hmm. Then they needed more sophistication in terms of their wealth management solution. 
So are really trying to fill that gap of like traditional wealth management is diversifying your wealth and stocks, bonds, ETFs, commodities, a whole bunch of uncorrelated, hopefully, stuff. But as you become worth 7, 10, 12, 15 million or much more, like 50 or 100 million, almost everybody is investing uh, directly into real estate or through an independent sponsor into real estate that's cash flowing and then also investing in the industry where they made their wealth. So if they're a manufacturing family, they're looking for manufacturing deal flow and real estate deal flow. And that's pretty much how most families operate. And some people don't do that from the beginning. They trust a wealth advisor with all of their money, Mm -hmm. but then they just find the itch as an entrepreneur to invest back into their industry or other industries. And then they also just desire a sense of control in their portfolio. It doesn't really feel normal to them to give it all up to a banker after spending a generation creating the wealth and say, oh, okay, don't lose it for us. Right, right. Well, and so they either get bored or, you know, they don't love retirement, which is what happened to my uncle. At 45, he's retired and and got really, really bored. It sounds like there's also people that they they want to invest their own money. They want to be in on the deals. They want to know what's going on. And what, I mean, what's your ideal client? Tell us about that because you work with a lot of different, different clientele. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. And also related to what you just said, I just think that uh, some people realize over time that the person they're working with usually inside of the wealth management firm may or may not be the founder of the firm. So they're getting a generic strategy that's being pushed out to lots of clients. Or if the person was so smart to manage their wealth, to really grow it and not just play a diversified defense, why wouldn't they be sitting on a beach somewhere if they knew how to create that type of wealth? Like, would they really be, you know, working 60 hours a week, serving clients at a wealth management firm, you know? Yeah, uh, (laughs) I like that point. If I had a gong, I would ring it right now. That's a great point. You know, that's something people need to think about. Yeah. If they're so good at managing wealth, what, what are they doing with your money? And I've heard, you know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard a lot of wealth managers, you know, they they really talk about being good at managing wealth and they're more dependent on fees and and maybe not as good managing their own wealth. I don't know. What what experience do you have with that? Yeah, I mean, most of the time they're connected to a platform and it's point click, diversify into stuff, get reporting through there. But when you're ultra wealthy, you want to buy the, you know, the 10 plex next to your office building, or you want to buy your actual office building. And unless it's a you know two hundred million dollar asset, the big investment banking shop and Goldman Sachs, U.S. Trust are not going to help you do that. Your wealth manager doesn't want to help you do that. They'll just say, "Be cautious, be careful, right. do your homework. Good luck." You know, so these families go out into the wilderness by themselves and figure out their direct investment portfolio. And that is our ideal client. It's a first generation, second generation wealth family, usually entrepreneurial. Sometimes their wealth was created in real estate, but usually from an operating business. And they want to design a strategy for their direct investments. Sometimes they need estate planning, tax planning, the full solution, but they especially need to dial in what type of operating businesses they're investing in and why, in what areas, what level of control, et cetera, at what valuations, and then also what type of real estate they want to allocate to and why. Because otherwise, what happens is they just start allocating all over the place to whoever has access to them or whoever they trust the most. But their assets get scattered all over, and then they can't add the strategic value that made them wealthy in the first place, where they really should design a unique game that's true to them, their background, their strengths, kind of their DNA, and where they want to focus their energy so that parts of their portfolio could be in multifamily or diversified stock market holdings to play defense, to grow their wealth in a tax-advantaged way in real estate, but then in their offensive area of their operating business investments, 
you know, that's where with a small percentage of their wealth, they could spike up their net worth. So the ideal client needs that because they're an entrepreneur at heart mm-hmm. and they're early second generation or first generation. So they still believe in creating wealth through creation of value and strategic control. If somebody just wants to diversify and they're generation four, just scared of losing great grandpa's money, then mm-hmm. they don't need me. They can just go to a wealth management shop and scatter their assets far and wide and diversify it to the extreme and not have to do anything. Right, right. No, I like that. So it sounds like you still recommend, you know, if they were like the example you gave, if they were in manufacturing, they, they need to niche down and not be throwing money at assisted livings, at, a, at apartment complexes, at storage units, at, you know, so I mean, people can do a few things, but that, that's the advice I've gotten as well from a number, number of mentors is they don't have shiny object syndrome, you know, um, right. down and, and be a specialist, even these ultra ultra wealthy, it sounds like you, you recommend they specialize as well and, and have that, I guess, ability to focus on, on one or two or a couple asset classes. Yeah, I think there's a difference between uh, controlling something completely yourself versus partially outsourcing or completely outsourcing it. So completely outsourcing might be talking to your wealth advisor, they get to know you, they design your portfolio, they invest it for you, and you just get a report once a month or something. The partially outsourcing would be finding maybe one fund manager and three to five independent sponsors, maybe just in one or two real estate types like self-storage and mobile home parks, multifamily and mobile home parks. So you can understand the space over time and get familiar with who's good, who's not, what's standard in the space in terms of returns and risk and fees. And then you know you can still choose things deal by deal but work through an independent sponsor so you don't have to manage the deal yourself as a family unless you really want to dig into a space and say, hey, we're going to go with multifamily with a third party, but for mobile home parks, we're going to do it ourselves and grow that muscle internally, and that's important to us as a family. You know, some families could choose to do that, but if you plan to invest in warehouses, data centers, mobile home parks, self-storage, multifamily, then you have five learning curves. Even if you're just choosing an independent sponsor, Mm-hmm. you've got five different learning curves to go up. So it just makes it more simple to choose uh, two or three at most in the real estate, even if you're using independent sponsors and then meet with 20 to 50 in each area. And then in the operating business side, some people say, oh, well, we're very excited about high tech and tech in general. We made our money in manufacturing or healthcare. They say, well, why don't you invest then in healthcare businesses and health tech or manufacturing tech and manufacturing? So you'll have an advantage knowing the space, you might even have an operating business. You could take their tech, use it in your real estate holdings or use it in your manufacturing plant yourself. And if it actually works, then you invest in the company. You can do better due diligence, et cetera. But yeah, most families don't focus enough and become ultra wealthy and just spread their money all over. Gotcha, interesting. And, and you know, that's what we're doing as well. We're focusing on two new asset classes. I know multifamily very well, understand it, get it. We can underwrite a deal in you know a half hour with my partners and I but it's harder and harder to find a good deal and we knew we needed to branch out. So the other asset class you mentioned was mobile home parks. It's hard to find a deal there as well, but that's one of the other asset classes we're focusing on. And we have a strategic partner. That's another thing that I thought you mentioned that, that I should go back to is, you know, have a couple options. So you and I met at Rod Cleves mastermind group. I've been watching the different, operators there and deciding who should I partner with you know a small piece of a large pie is better than a a large piece and piece of no pie so 
right. I believe in finding the right partners for sure. And so we've got one in the mobile home park that's one of the best in the business. We have one now in assisted living as well. And, you know, we keep the, every time we stray from those two asset classes, we waste a lot of time. We were just looking at a hotel in uh, Farmington, New Mexico. I don't know if you've ever been to the Four Corners area, but yeah. it definitely uh, was a big waste of time. So, yeah. uh, no, I, I'm with you there. Specialized folks on a few asset classes because, yeah, you know, if, if you specialize in medical devices and you're trying to underwrite a business in technology, you're, it's going to be a, a huge learning curve and, and probably makes right. mistakes along the way. So I think that's really smart what you said. But tell me this, I've got a question I usually ask it at the beginning. You know, the reason we have this podcast is to hear from you what you saw during the downturn and maybe a couple specific examples. It can be real estate or non-real estate related, but what are a couple of the biggest mistakes you saw people make and why or why not is that happening again more or still happening or tell me a little bit about that and, and what your experience was, what you saw during the downturn. Yeah, biggest mistakes I saw was people buying lots of acreage for single family residential development. And then during the entitlement process, which can be very slow, their construction financing gets pulled because the economy recedes and they didn't know the fine print of their you know, debt agreements and what uh -huh. the clauses were in there and that there could be one little clause that just negates everything else in the agreement and they can just pull the money because of some market factor or some trigger internally or, or something that's out of their control. And so I think a lot of people get so stressed out about, oh, we need to find the LPs, we need to find the equity and they're running around trying to circle the equity and they just write off debt. It's like, oh yeah, we'll get debt from any places, whatever. It's all within, you know, 10, 20 basis points of each other. Yeah. They don't know the debt agreement enough to push back on certain terms and clauses and really negotiate the fine print of the debt agreement and make sure maybe they're getting some uh, basis points carved off of that. And so I think keeping optionality in your debt agreements, and we just, we just closed three self-storage debt agreements recently, and it's a competitive business, but there's just so many clauses within the agreement that just get overlooked and just everyone's going 80 miles per hour trying to find the LP investors that they honestly just don't care that much. They just want to get in place and focus on where the bottleneck is, which is usually the investor. You know, I, I think that's really important. A lot of people don't understand why there were so many foreclosures why there's so many bank owned properties and it wasn't necessarily because people were being foolish it was but there was also a lot of terms signed that people didn't realize that their house could be taken away there's you know my broker my the owner of my company you know worth a lot of money very successful he was talking about during the downturn he had to come up with 30,000 because he had a huge amount of equity in his home he, like a lot of others in real estate, struggled, and the bank was very excited to take his home away, even though he had never missed a payment, you know, in, in, until that, that time, and, and he had a huge amount of equity. And so, you know, I, I think that's a great point. Look at your loan terms, and don't think about what's going on now. Think about, okay, you know, if there a recession comes, how could I get caught? And right. I'm glad you mentioned that, because most people don't even know what to look for you know, but for instance, being able to call the loan due or just retract financing, that's huge, you know, and, and banks are very risk adverse and, and you want to know, talk to that underwriting team, the loan committee, 
what their stance is if if things change. That's a great example. Anything else that that you really saw happen or you're seeing happen now with deals that are going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that whenever there's a herd of people chasing, you know, a single asset class or bidding something up just based on the momentum of it, like, you know, you could say maybe technology stocks and the stock market or the stock market in general and, you know, the multifamily space becoming tougher and tougher for anyone to find like a really good deal to do business in. Mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, one of the smarter real estate investors I know, he sold his whole, his whole portfolio to a major investment bank that he had know the name of in 2007 and got completely out of the market uh-huh. and then the market crashed and he's going through that exact same process right now and he's going to be free and clear of everything in the next 30 days. Wow. I don't know if he'll be as smart on timing, but it's better to be early than late if you're looking to, you know, avoid and be yeah. able to go in strong because like the embedded mistake of so many people getting burned is that they didn't have cash ready to deploy when the market went down. So even though the wealthy could get burned very badly and even 70% of the portfolio, their 10% sitting on cash now buys twice as much. And then when everything recovers, they're wealthier than ever before. So I think that ironically, the small to moderate sized investor who's maybe worth five or 10 million net worth or two to 4 million net worth, Mm-hmm. They get hurt by far the worst because they have this need to be more aggressive to become, they want to be worth 10 million. So they're right. really putting the pedal to the floor on leverage, on having four projects going at once, on relying upon partners and 